For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Okay. Well, here we are again. Seems like we just left a minute ago. <laughs> Welcome, Bodhisattvas. Thank you all very much for gathering here together this evening, gathering our hearts and our minds. We gather together in Sazen, in one as one, practice body in the cloud send up and in Zoom space. So welcome. Mina, it's nice to see you. You've been on my mind. I haven't seen you for a little while. So hi. Um, so we're in the cloud zendo. We're in this cozy, cozy zendo in Lincoln Square. Uh, yesterday, we celebrated the Great Awakening of Shakyamuni Buddha uh, by sitting together in stillness for the day of Rohatsu Sashin. Our little Lincoln Square Zendo was super cozy, super full, with 18 people, Zen sardines, sitting in person. Um, even a few more could have fit in, probably, but... We're just getting used to handling the crowd. Um, still, I sense spaciousness and um, great devotion and sincere effort, both in the cloud and on the ground, since I'm able to hang out in two dimensions. I guess I'm flat. <laughs> so I look on the screen. Um, so we practiced together in harmony and in peace yesterday at Rohatsu. I don't know if anybody who was there thought it was pretty settled and peaceful. I heard very little speaking. Um, and this is the way we practice. This is our wonderful ancient Zen gate family style, this harmonious practice of the Buddha way. Um, but tonight, um, I hope we can explore uh, a little bit about how we find our way in practice. Uh, and with the help and inspiration of a little shred of haiku poetry. Now, I don't know a thing about haiku poetry. I'm sorry, Gyoshin isn't here. But there are many people who are much expert probably in that sitting together here today. So I apologize for my ignorance. But... I want to offer this shred as one inspiration of how we find our way. What marks the way? What are the signs and markers of the Buddha way? How do we recognize the pointers along the way? I think we chanted something like, if you don't know the way right before you. <laughs> how do we connect to our way-seeking mind compass? <laughs> the kind of Bodhi GPS that's 
based in our vow of bodhicitta, this great vow of awakening for all beings. It's kind of a crazy vow, you know, that what this inspiration that brings us here together and practicing in the world, you know, technically speaking, this bodhicitta, chitta, is this heart-mind that arises somehow, mysteriously, sometimes kind of ordinarily, to live for the benefit of all beings, practice for the benefit of all beings, like, but go all the way to Buddhahood to be helpful. So not just like my little private Idaho of Samadhi, but actually this practice of like we act and hang out in the world um, at the same time practicing like Buddha. <laughs> so it's kind of a wonderful thing that we do. So how do we find the way? How did you ever find the way through the chaos of our minds, you know, cutting through the weeds, um, the weeds and tangles of our afflictive emotions, of our anger and sadness, of our confusion? You know, the world does seem like a bit of a ball of confusion these days. How do we find our way despite or because of or embracing our human limitations to realize Buddhahood. <laughs> to realize our hearts and live our lives to benefit the greater and all living beings. And of course, there's no one way, you know. In Soto Zen, technically speaking, it's like, Zen. You know, but how do we find our seat? How do we find a zendo? How do we find our way together? How do we find each other as sanghas? This is a great mystery I just would invite everyone to contemplate this evening. Um, personally, I've always been interested in and kind of captivated by or inspired by um, the practice journeys of others. If anybody's done this, like read about, like maybe you read Crooked Cucumber, how Suzuki came to practice. Maybe you've read some old stories, you know, of like old women ancestors, how they came to practice. Um, you know, how Shakyamuni Buddha came to practice and how he found his place, his seat of awakening. But also, I'm always interested in your stories, like everyday life stories of how people end up in a place together practicing, how the cloud, what brought you into the clouds to come here to ancient dragon? You know, what was your compass point? What was the roadmap that you were following that you probably didn't even know, you know, um, until you arrived and are leaving and arriving all the time. Um, for me, in this very odd way, stones, rocks, have been guideposts. <laughs> way markers, you might say, for me. And I'll just share this, now I'll get to the little haiku 
which goes like this. Uh, this is the stone drenched with rain that points the way. That's it. Smart gravity. <laughs> so anybody heard, anybody recognize this little haiku? Anybody in there? Google it quick so you can like find it. Mm. So I first read it so long ago that my original text fell apart from me reading it, but it's in this book called The Path of Zen, Taking the Path of Zen, sorry, by Robert Aitken, Roshi, deceased Roshi. I don't know if anybody's seen this book or read it. Anybody? Douglas has. He's a great reader. Any of you there? Ah, Deborah, Tigan, Amina. Okay. Patrick, maybe you have in your beautiful display there. But this is a book, um, an unusual book. But I don't know what to say about it, but I'll, I'll try to say something. So it starts out to the memory and to the presence of Yasutani Hakon Shitsu Rodaishi. So some old great teacher. Um, but it starts out in the kind of front page. And this is what I remember is reading this. This is a stone drenched with rain that marks the way. And it says that it was written by a haiku master named Santoka. And it was translated by a famous Zen and Japanese and Chinese-ophile, Robert, or no, Reginald, R.H. Blythe, not to be confused with Robert, but Reginald Blythe, uh, from a book called A History of Haiku. So this is essentially all I know about this. But when I read it, it was like, this book is for me. <laughs> Even the cover, there's a, a photo on the cover by Morris Graves called Birds Searching for the Cliffs, courtesy of the Art Institute. Too bad you can't see it. There's kind of a glare. But it's really a great painting. Um, maybe Has anyone seen it at the Art Institute? Maybe Ed. Ed's, Ed's got a good artistic eye. Um, I haven't. Um, and believe it or not, then I just kept reading the rest of the book. Um, but I think this is so instructive. Uh, so this book, eh, you know, sometimes Robert Aiken can sound a little quirky, a little old-fashioned, but he kind of goes over all the basics you need. How to sit zazen, uh, Delusions and pitfalls, attitudes and religious practice. Did you know we're doing a religious practice? The precepts, koans, like he, he brings out the mu koan. And I have never studied koans formally, but this started my koan practice, actually, independent. And uh, Aiken actually got interested in Zen, I think, when he was in a... Um, 
Japanese basically concentration camp for Americans. He was in Guam during World War II and got rounded up and thrown into this camp. And it turned out R.H. Blythe, another foreigner, was also in the camp. And this has kind of got Aitken Roshi going. So his path is very interesting, and it's actually uh, outlined at the end of this uh, little book. And, it's, and he titles it Willy Nilly Zen. That's kind of old-fashioned, but uh, I highly recommend it. But my my sort of wish today is just to, to explore this uh, stone drenched with rain that marks the way. Now, I've just been into this stone mode, which is what caused me to remember uh, this little piece of haiku. It's probably the only haiku that I, I know. <laughs> I guess there's a frog that goes plop or something, but, but this is a stone drenched with rain that points the way. I found out that like one of Aitken's Dharma Roshis includes this in a book of koans, which surprised me. I just found that out like when I was preparing for this talk with the help of Google, Google song. Um, so this is the stone drenched with rain that points the way. I felt such a deep resonance. Ah, oh, this is the way. And I read this book till it fell apart and then got another one. <laughs> um, what is this way? It felt in accord with something that I knew, something known, but not defined. Like a hammer striking emptiness. What is that sound? Um, you know, stones are special in some cultures. They sometimes are said to have magical powers, you know, consciousnesses of their own. In Japanese culture, what <laughs> I probably know less about Japanese culture than I know about haiku, but I'll say something out of my ignorance because it inspires me. And I've been blessed to receive the rain, the Dharma rain of so many wonderful teachers. But in Japanese culture, I've heard that stones mark boundaries, that they mark liminal spaces, you know, between the mundane and the sacred. They mark boundaries in places of tea, tea gardens, where people shouldn't go. Sometimes you see a little stone. It's good when you wander around. You ever do that, like wander around, and all of a sudden you see a stone, and it, you're like, wow, what, is there something going on here? Is this marking something? I'm sure I've gone to tea places, tea gardens, and probably never noticed some of these seki, these stones. Actually, what we chanted today, right, is by sekito kisen, which means stonehead or rockhead. That's where Shirto put his hut on a, an outcrop of rock. So stones, stones mean something uh, to us, something mysterious. Stones mark sometimes where cremation ashes are deposited, 
think if anyone's been to Tassajara and climbed up to the stone that marks where Suzuki Roshi's ashes are, and then taken a ladle of cool water. I actually remember bringing that water in my um, water bottle. I think there's a water thing there, but pouring it over this dry stone. I'm sure Tigan's done that. Maybe other people have done that at Tussamara. Asian, you've done that at Tussamara, yeah. Um, There's something about the water contacting the stone, which feels so deep in our practice. Do you ever feel like you're a stone, impenetrable, and somehow the Dharma cools us, soothes us? You know, Suzuki Roshi loves stones. Ah. So these stones as markers pointing the way on the path are both sites of awakening themselves, like Bodhi Mandas or dojos, as Tigan mentioned yesterday, places of the way, the do, and dao. So there's this dynamic quality with these stones that seem so steady and immovable sometimes of awakening and then going beyond awakening and awakening pointing this way. And the rain that drenches the stone is pretty remarkable. The Dharma rain droplets of prajna paramita joining with the hardness, softening the rigidity maybe of our Discursive minds that chop up the world into categories, yes and no. Rock and water. Winners and losers, good and bad. You know. (laughs) Um, This rain also, though, I think, can be a hard rain. (laughs) going to fall. This hard rain of facing the difficulties we meet in practice. Receiving those. Difficulties, this rain can be this rain of prajna, but also that rain, that prajna can look like all of our karmic hindrances, all of our joys and sorrows and attachments and fantasies and pain we've caused ourselves and others and all the good things we've done for ourselves. This rain penetrates the rock, these difficulties and maybe even the unexpected wonders in life. Um, And, you know, I think we all know that waking up can be a little difficult. Yesterday, some people were reporting, like, really struggling, you know, in the Zendo. Like, you know, we didn't quite have our Zazen legs because some of us haven't been sitting as much during the pandemic or doing a, a long Rahatsu retreat. Or... If your body was okay, there's a lot of emotional stuff percolating. This is our, this is the rain soaking the stone, too. You know, the Buddha, Shakyamuni Buddha, decided to sit his own Rohatsu Sashin. So this is like the original 
Rohatsu. Um, and it said in the foundational literature of the old way that Buddha was walking around kind of alone. And, and this is some words. I saw an agreeable piece of ground, a delightful grove with a clear flowing river with pleasant smooth banks. Probably there were a few stones there. And a nearby village for alms going. So pretty good. Need to be near a village, not too far away, so you can go get some sustenance. And the thought occurred to me, this place will serve for the striving of a clansman, one of the Shakya clan, Shakyamuni Buddha, um, me. This will be pretty good for someone intent on striving. So our practice has this difficult quality too, but we want to do that in a place that's welcoming to us. And Buddha goes on and says, and I sat down there thinking, yes, this will serve for striving. And I've really always loved this passage. You know, the Buddha understands that what he's going to be doing, realizing his Bodhi mind, he's going to have to sit like a rock. (laughs) But he also knows that it's pretty difficult because he studied with a bunch of teachers, the best teachers available in India at his time, uh, and surpassed them. They did not, he did not learn what he was seeking. Maybe he'd seen a rock, a stone drenched with rain pointing this way. And he, but there's the pointer keeps pointing, not here, not quite yet. Or, oh, there's something else. Um, and Buddha starved himself and engaged in all these ascetic practices, tested his body to the brink of death. <laughs> and none of it produce the liberation he was seeking. And so he comes to this spot kind of dazed from not eating, without friends, because he was abandoned by his sangha mates or his buddies. Um, They didn't think he was tough enough. Uh, And he says, "This, this place, this is where I'll sit. It's agreeable. And he finds this path and he sits down in an agreeable place, knowing that it would support the mind to settle, the body and mind to settle. And then he was able to confront the totality, let's say, of his mind stream and remain upright, (laughs) the mind stream of suffering, immersed fully in that reign of suffering He sat like a rock. And ultimately, he realizes that he and the entire world are awakened, always awake. They just don't quite realize it. So in Rahatsu, we celebrate this, right? Buddha's recognition of markers along the path and bit by bit following this Bodhi compass, just like all of you. Uh, Dogen writes, 
Ancient people practiced on the ground, led by stones. My, my editorial. But Dogen says, ancient people practiced on the ground or under a tree. Such places are sacred forever. A single person's continuous practice creates a dojo for many Buddhas. So this is that stone again. The stone itself, drenched with rain, points the way, but it also is the dojo, the place of practice. Um, and I would like to sort of end my babbling a little bit in a second. But I will tell you that in just recently in contemplating this little piece of haiku, this is a stone drenched with rain that points the way. I remembered that I first started sitting by a stone in a mangrove swamp slash forest in a little clearing in my childhood when my mother was dying. And I would sit there and cry and feel peace. Nonetheless, herons would come, the water would flow. There was a breeze, there was a beautiful stone at this clearing. And somehow that stone, I believe, is what Sun Toku was writing about. Who also, by the way, I learned in my uh, Google consultation, also lost his mother to suicide at a young age and wandered with a very, very, very difficult life, dying young, consumed by alcoholism, but kept going, kept looking for these stones and wrote beautiful haiku. Um, so I'll just say that everyone here is a wayfarer, spotting the stone drenched with rain that points the way, the stone drenched with rain, the stone drenched with tears, the stone drenched with fears, the stone drenched with hopes, <laughs> dreams, wisdom, and this great, great tender vow to somehow care for the world and support peace and harmony. In a classic Mahayana text, it's written, the true mind of every sentient being teaches itself and leads each sentient being. This is the vow of Buddha. The true mind of every sentient being teaches and leads each sentient being. This is, this is our, the vow of Buddha. This is kind of our vow. So the mind itself is teaching. We're all teaching each other. We're all rocks for each other. We're all guideposts for each other here at Ancient Dragon. This long, strange trip we've been on. So before we move into discussion time, thank you all very much for listening to my little story, by the way. I would like to just invite you to just take a minute to connect with your true mind 
to settle, just make yourself a little comfortable seat, just like Buddha, and close your eyes. Just go, go inside and connect to your breath. Find your stone story. Contemplating these words, this is the stone drenched with rain that points the way. Reflect on what led you to practice. Where were you when you first had that? Notice that marker. How old were you? What was your life like? What were your circumstances? Was there any marker or sign that you remember? A stone, a person, a tree, a sound, maybe sound of raindrops that oriented you, that still guides you in some way along the way? And bring yourself to this moment right here on your seat. What is pointing your way? What is marking your path, your Buddha way? How do you know the path right before you? How do you know? So bodhisattvas, please offer your own responses to the call of the wild <laughs> or your stones drenched with rain. So please bring forth your commentary on this late evening after Rahatsu. Thank you very much. My dear raindrops. What is your way? Thank you for a wonderful talk, um, especially for that last little moment to uh, breathe in for a little bit. Um, so I started thinking about the first experience I had with Zazen, which I feel really lucky about, was a very positive one when I was a child. When I was like nine or ten years old. My dad was exploring Zen, and, uh, and he took me to the Cambridge Zen Center within mm -hmm. Massachusetts. And uh, and what I I what I'm what I'm thinking about is when I sat in their zendo. Um, when I was being restless, the whole time through sitting, they would like offer to get me a chair or you know do something to try and make me comfortable. 
And I think that has had a profound influence on what I believe Zen is that I hadn't really considered until now, because they could have just as easily, like the second I started being restless, just asked me to go outside or something, mm-hmm. or not let me in the Zen to begin with, right. you know. But the fact that they were so patient with me as a child to like, you know, oh, okay, you might need this. Oh, try sitting over here. Or maybe you need this cushion, you know. Um, that that planted an imprint of me of the of the Zazen experience being one that was a, a tender and compassionate mm-hmm. one rather than something else, you know. Uh, so uh, thank you for making me consider that. That was really nice. Thank you for sharing that beautiful experience as a child and of people helping you, pointing the way to find an agreeable place <laughs> to awaken. Um, you know, it's interesting when I was reading this book, actually, Robert Aitken said children should be invited into the Zendo. And, you know, don't, don't try to make them sit too long, but just let them sit a little bit. So he was a big fan of lay people and the reality of practice in daily life. And, uh, you know, we, when we create our Zendo space, we're, we're conscious of inviting, having a space that invites people and allows them to be comfortable. Um, so thank you. Any offerings from the cloud? Any rain from the cloud? Robert Aitken also has this book called Original Dwelling Place. Highly recommend his essays. Hover by Helen Frankenthaler. Mm-hmm. Um, really nice. Very nice. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. Mike Bodhisattva. Let's see. Thank you for... Uh, Dylan, can we get an eyeball on yeah. Mike, possibly? He's on the Oh, is he there? Yeah. Okay, great. Thanks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, thank you for a very thought-provoking uh, talk and, and sharing your thoughts. Um, I, I came to Ancient Dragon uh, almost four years ago now mm-hmm. um, with my partner, Wake, who many of you know. Um, and he was on kind of his own journey looking for, for something spiritual. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think really I came here just kind of accompanying <laughs> Uh, not only wanting to support him and, and what he was looking for, but the, um, my own curiosity. Um, so really, my first Zen experiences were kind of, uh, I didn't say it happened, it happened to me, but, um, you know, um, I was kind of along for the ride for a while. Um, and, the, and still, and, you know, and I, have, I struggle with a lot of anxiety and I'm finding my own way, my own mind. Um, but there's something about being here and about this practice. Um, it's continued 
uh, kept me coming uh, and kept me practicing. I have no clue what it is. Uh, it's so amorphous, um, but I, I do feel drawn to be here and be in the sangha and be um, doing that thing that we all do to to kind of cultivate um, a better world for everyone. Um, I don't know what it is, um, and and I think that's, that's beautiful. Good. I think that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah that's um, because beautiful. Um, yeah. So I don't know. That, that's my own story. I guess. <laughs> Thank you. It's kind of like testimonials, but, but you know, the thing is, is that uh, there is this mystery. And I also think we, we can have confidence in our experience. When something isn't right, we know it. And finding that compass and trusting ourselves fully you know, I feel lucky that I've practiced with many teachers, but not all of them were my teachers. And some of their practices didn't feel in accordance with what was my Bodhi compass. That's okay. They have their own path to take and we cross paths. But I think it's it's good to trust yourself and this and not and the trust and not knowing and the wisdom in that. But also you know your heart. Something says this. This will nurture me. This is. This helps me be the person I know I am. This helps me be Buddha. So thank you, Buddha. Mike. Thank you. Oh, Amina, Bodhisattva. Thank you. I wasn't so attentive to our fellow folk. Thank you, Hogetsu. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've probably told this story before, but I became curious about Buddhism and. You know, I was living in Chicago and I visited several different places and I never went back to any of them. Um, I didn't have a ne- negative experience, you know, with, with any of the other places, but it just, uh, you know, nothing resonated for me or I didn't feel close to it. And when I came to Ancient Dragon, I felt like this instant kind of coming home, you know, even though I was coming to a place I had never been before, you know, and, and toward experiences I had never had before. And, you know, I think about too what it was, and I think it was partly Soto Zen Buddhism, you know, the forms and um, that, and the way of sitting zazen, you know. And um, but I know it was all of you guys too. It was you, Hogetsu, and you know, it was um, Roger and Kathy and Asian and Yozan, and then Taigen, you know, who I didn't meet at first. I think I did. I it, you know, because Taigen was still in the Bay area. And so it took me a couple of months or a few months maybe to meet him. And then of course, Tygen. And, um, I, you know, since moving 14 and a half years ago now, which feels crazy to LA, you know, and, and not, not really having a Sangha here, you know, I have asked myself, like, is it a negative thing? Is it like attachment? You know, like, did I get attached to one Sangha or one kind of group of people, you know, and, and what does that mean? And, and, you know, I should be able to sit with people in person here too. And I went through a similar process, you know, where I have visited different places in LA and for a year I sat at ZCLA and, you know, and and then just kind of, just kind of tapered off. But um, but yeah, I wonder if an ancient dragon, there's just, I don't know, like there are stones, (laughs) like I I saw a stone, you know, and um, 
with you guys. Um, but you know, like, um, like Mike, I don't entirely know what it is, you know, but it's, it's very present for me. So thank you. Thank you, uh, Amina for, um, bringing the rain on all of our stones <laughs> and Hogetsu. Thank you. It's eight forty, So we have to uh, close up now, but, um, Thank you for a really lovely, heartfelt talk, Hogetsu. Really appreciate it.